You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. And welcome back to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I am your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. And today we have one of our favorite returning guests. We have Dr. Edward O'Brien. And you may be thinking, that name sounds familiar. You guys share the same name. And in fact, we do. This is my husband. And if you've been listening for a long time, he used to be on more frequently when we were trapped together in the house for COVID. And then we were untrapped and he hasn't been on as much. But you guys have been asking for him because we find him to be a delightful guest. So um, welcome back to the podcast, Dr. O'Brien. Thank you. So, okay, I put up a question box for you guys last week. And as always, it cracks me up when I put up the question box because everybody, there's always these like clumps of questions and it's it's always like five or six of the same question. And so I, what I did was I just took the most commonly asked questions, which I will ask Ed today. Ed, can you actually tell everybody your credentials so that they might understand why you would be an invited guest on my podcast? Uh, what are you? I am a physician, MD. Quit moving around. Uh, uh, MBA. Yeah, that's about it. MD, MBA. Right. Okay. What does that mean? Just that I'm a physician. Uh, that I went to medical school and the MBA means I went to business school. So I do a lot of medical business things. Medical business things. Mm -hmm. Neat. Okay, great. We look forward to unpacking that today. Okay. So a lot of people asked us, I'm going to start with this one right out of the gate because this is just really comical to me. We clearly put off some sort of air that we have our shit together because Mm -hmm. multiple people asked for parenting advice and marriage advice, which I found particularly comical. So it just must mean that we we're just giving people the vibe that we're, we're like doing something right. Um, so would you say there's any piece of marriage advice that you would like to give our listeners? <laughs> I know I was like, you be, guys are so confused. Well, we're a mess. I think that's good advice. I mean, I think <laughs> I'm obviously not qualified to give marriage advice. That's very true. Um, but I would say, two things you everyone wants to put on their best airs you know what i mean so if it looks like people have it together on a podcast or social media or whatever Mm -hmm. like they probably have the same issues you have so uh, you know i think there's a lot of issues uh, in marriage and life in general that are relatively universal and i think i don't know why but i guess in society we want to put on airs that that's not us or that we're doing better or whatever Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. And otherwise, marriage wise, you know, I, Claire keeps it all together and I just roam around doing random things. And then she holds it all together pretty much. You said it. No, I will say we, one thing that we did, gosh, probably like five or six years ago, we just were like, we were talking to Ed's cousin, um, Tara and she and her husband are just, we just really look up to them and they have a great relationship. And they were telling us they do like prophylactic marriage counseling, meaning just like 
don't wait till you have a problem to start going to marriage counseling. And so we were like, gosh, we can like, we can be better at this. Like we should just start going to marriage counseling. And we saw a counselor in Charleston, um, Meredith Little, actually shout out Meredith. And one of the first things that she told us to do was to take the Enneagram because she could just tell from me talking about Ed and him talking about me, there were like some inherent things about both of our personalities that the other person just ultimately like didn't really understand. And one of those things was, you know, Ed is, we move a lot and he changes jobs or like takes on new projects or takes on new like consulting work or let me be an expert witness or just all these new things. And I was like, why aren't you happy? Like, why can't you just be chill? And like, what is, you know, that was me. And anyway, turns out he's just a seven um, on the Enneagram. And so that honestly, that was hugely helpful for us. So we, we've done marriage counseling on and off for the last five years, which I think is really helpful. And there have actually been some really big things in our lives that we just like happen to be in counseling kind of at the same time, which is, I mean, I think was so helpful um, for us. And we've seen various different people just, you know, we've moved to Nashville and we used to see these people virtually during COVID that were so great. So I think just wanting people to know, like, there's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to be going through something crazy. You can just look at your marriage and be like, gosh, we could be better at this. So super helpful. Love a counselor. Um, okay. This next question is great. And I want you to give some background here. Okay. So nurse practitioner said, I want to do overseas volunteering, but how do I get started and what's bogus and what's a, a red flag? Okay. So what is your background in overseas um, medical volunteering? Would you say? Yes. I went on my first medical mission trip, uh, probably 23 or 24 years ago. I remember Michael Overcash, I went with him. He's a, a Durham PA here in Charleston. And um, I just went, I didn't know what I was doing. I think I went to Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. Didn't know what I was doing, didn't know what I was getting into. I certainly, I was I think I was a, probably a, like a first year medical student. And I was probably incredibly dangerous, like, you know, but uh, they weren't letting me you know, see patients particularly, but I just pitched in however I could. And then it's, I just really wanted to get an experience of what it was like outside of the United States about how other people live. So I think, you know, the first time you go somewhere, I think it's really about that. It's about changing your cultural mindset and seeing how other people live and what other people might need. And then I just noticed on that trip that, you know, that trip was with a church, which was, which was great. Called Seacoast Church, a great church. Um, but I kind of felt led to make sure that people who weren't in churches or weren't involved with churches could have a similar experience and just see what the world was like and, and lend their talents, you know, in time, uh, to people who are in need, um, both locally and abroad. And so I started Palmetto medical initiative in 2008. And since then it's turned into one world health and it sees, I mean, hundreds of thousands of patients now a year. It's got something like 25 centers throughout, um, Africa, uh, mostly Uganda, uh, Nicaragua, and Honduras, and um, all done in a self-sustaining manner. So I would say, second part of that question is, who do you go with? I would say this, make sure whoever you go with, like is locally run uh, and run operated. So in other words, our healthcare systems in Uganda are run by Ugandans. Um, if, if we all died at One World Health tomorrow, those systems- That'd be super weird. Those systems, yeah, well, those systems will still run. So that's, that's hugely important. And then make sure that they're, they're, you know, that you're not importing things that aren't applicable to that culture. So I would say, 
in other words, if you're packing a bunch of medicines from the United States and taking them with you to, you know, Uganda, for example, well, you may be giving someone hydrochlorothiazide for their blood pressure here, but they don't have that over there. So by then they run out of your 90 days that you've given them, they're not going to be able to get that medicine or anything like it. So, you know, just make sure that, that the medicines you, you, you use and the, and the cultural, um, kind of, I don't know what to say, I guess, experiences. Competency, cultural yeah. competency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cultural important. competency. Yeah, exactly. Make sure that's, you know, in line and then make sure they, make sure they check your credentials and, you know, get your licenses and all that kind of stuff in order. Oh, we've got so many organizations don't do that, which is pretty wild. Like you could get yeah. stuck in a country for like illegally practicing medicine. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's not a lot of litigation with this kind of stuff, but it's starting to happen and it's getting really, it's just, I mean, you treat these people the same way you treat people in the United States. I mean, there's, you know, malpractice, all that kind of stuff should, should be applicable. And, and so, um, yeah, it's a good way to get healthcare experience if you want to go into healthcare, but certainly if you're not licensed, you, that organization shouldn't let you receive patients and things like that. Well, and I always say too, when, when people ask, so Ed's obviously been on more trips than, than I have, but I've probably been on, I don't know, 10, 15, I don't honestly don't know. Um, ton of, ton of trips to Uganda and Nicaragua. And when non-medical people say, oh gosh, I like, I'd love to do that, but I just, I don't even know what I'd do. Okay. This is the comparison that I give them, right? Think about when you're, when you go to the doctor's office, how many people in that office are not the doctor, right? So there's like one or nurse practitioner or PA or whatever you're doing. There's one provider and five or six other people like running the show. And that doesn't even count when you leave there. If you go to physical therapy or you go to the pharmacy or you go to get blood work or x-rays, whatever happens, um, there's so many other people literally doing all of the things. So it, it, it's the same way with medical missions. We have to have a good bit of non-medical people on the trip. Otherwise, the medical folks that are there to work really can't because um, you, you get so bogged down doing everything that you're really, you're really stuck. So always encourage non-medical people to go. It will be one of the most magnificent experiences of your life. And I think also a really good book, if you're like, what is cultural competency? What does that mean? When Helping Hurts. Um, don't, don't you like that book? You think it's a good book for people to read? I do. Uh, yeah, I think I read I don't remember it. I, I mean, I think it time. helps people just understand kind of what you're talking about. Because it's very easy to think... I mean, we do this with a lot of things like, you know, toy drives at Christmas. And is that really helpful or is that just like more crap in the hospital? I don't know. So, yeah, that's a good one. Okay. Next question. I really like this question and I'm I'm going to give away our idea and I hope nobody steals it, although we haven't acted on it. So it's too late now. But um, what's your experience with APPs or advanced practice providers or mid-levels? Like, can you talk about I, I mean, I I would love to hear about how you got how you started working with the PA program. So Ed used to run the PA program at MUSC. Um, well, I didn't run it. Well, whatever. You're the medical director. Um, <laughs> uh, I've always, I, you know, I don't know. I think probably my first experience with the PA was probably Michael Overcash also. I think I roomed with him in the PA program in medical school. And truthfully, I was jealous of their curriculum. It's like they took our four-year curriculum and like cut out all the stuff like the biochemistry and some of the stuff that at the time didn't seem very relevant to me. And they just like crammed it all in two years and they had all the cool clinical stuff and where I was suffering through, you know, some embryology or whatever. Um, and, uh, yeah. And so after that, I just have done tons of mission work with, with, uh, PAs and nurse practitioners and have really, um, appreciated their role in healthcare. And so, 
loved the PA education and just really got involved in teaching over there and in, in, in the PA program. And, and uh, since that time, I started fellowships in PA for telehealth and emergency medicine. Um, and it's just fun. I find the, the PA profession and NP to be super rewarding. I think the, I'll say this. If you're thinking about a career in PA or NP, here's the greatest thing you can do. You can change specialties. Like mm-hmm. I'm stuck. I <laughs> you know, like well, residencies are stuck. Maybe not you personally, because right. you've done eight thousand things. But like most people get stuck. Right. But like you go through, and you're a dermatologist. You are not going to go back to residency That's and true. be a orthopedic surgeon. That's true. It's just not going to happen. The Correct. residencies aren't going to fund you. But if you're a PA and you do dermatology for a while, you're like, you know what? I I really love sports and orthopedics. I'm going to move over to that. You can. So, I mean, to me, that's really cool. Yeah. It's, um, it's, but I'm also seven on the Enneagram. So, like, new things make me excited. So, it might not be for everybody, but it's a great option out there, I think. That's super cool. Okay. There was a period of time. So, I am obviously an APP or a mid-level. I, I don't get – I'm not offended by that term. I don't understand the offense, but that's okay. Um, and I have always had very successful relationships with my attendings. I've had one, two, three, I don't know, 15 and really helped them to run their clinics very, very efficiently. Even my my last attending, my favorite attending, and he said when I first started working with him, he did not want to do things the way that I was telling him to do, but then ultimately made him do it, and he was so much happier, and we were so much more efficient. And so I was talking to Ed, and I was like, gosh, we should start like a consulting firm for practices who know that they want to work with APPs but don't know how to use them efficiently. Cause I, we hear that a lot. Like, I don't know what I would do. And I'm like, what, what do they do? Like, how can they help you? Aren't they just taking my, my patients? And there's so much that can be done anyway. So if you would like to, um, to do a consultation with me and Ed about your practice and how you can use an APP efficiently in your practice, we are really good at that. We talk about it and, uh, we just never really did anything with that because we have too many other projects. Supplements and vitamins are just a part of so many of our daily lives now, so how do we know what to choose in a brand? My family personally uses Thorne. Thorne has partnerships with hospitals and universities across the country, including the Mayo Clinic and Charleston's own Medical University of South Carolina. You can order any Thorne product through me when you create your account at thorne.com slash use slash dabblecoat, and you'll receive 15% off and free shipping on all your future orders. When you create your account, you will just be prompted to confirm Dabbleco as your referral and the discounts applied in the cart after you create your account. Again, that's thorn.com slash you, like the letter U, slash Dabbleco. And you can also find the direct link in the show notes. Okay, this is a really, really good question. One that we have personally been through in the last couple of weeks. So how to advocate for your children's health care without being an a-hole. Do you have any thoughts? I have a couple thoughts. Why not be, why not just be an a-hole? Well, some people are. <laughs> I think that comes naturally to a lot of people. Um, I would, I would say, I don't know in this day and age, I mean, I'll be in full transparency. I struggle greatly with it in pediatrics with my own children, because, you know, I know the way I would treat someone who comes in with like a new onset migraine type headache as an adult, like, I know that it says an up to date that, you know, they qualify for neuroimaging and, you know, I'm probably going to check some blood and, you know, whatever. I'm going to do a relatively, you know, I guess, thorough examination. And, and you know, pediatrics is definitely not like that. They're, they're definitely more conservative and uh, are like, well, common yeah. things are common. And that's definitely something to appreciate. 
it's definitely a different way of thinking for me. So it's, it, it's hard. What I do is I just try to reason out what I'm thinking and kind of say that. And I say exactly what I would do to the pediatrician, you know, and you know, usually they're like, well, that's not really what we well, do. But you're coming from a different place. I mean, I think we're just talking about normal parents here who don't have a medical background, like how, I mean, so they may take your opinion very differently. Well, no, I, th- I, th- well, I think that's, I'm sure they probably do take it a little differently. I would assume just like if you're a, I don't know, if you're a florist and you're telling another florist, like, you know, I prefer this flower. That's a probably bad example. Great. I love that example. <laughs> but anyway, I don't know where that came from, but, uh, <laughs> I think, so I would say if, but, but every parent out there has probably done their Google on it or whatever. And I don't think it's unreasonable to go to the doctor and be like, Hey, listen, like, just be honest this, I Googled this. Could it be a brain tumor? You know? And, you know, you're planting that seed and they are be like, well, yeah, we thought about that. And here's why it's not. Yeah. And I think that's that's part of the role of a good doctor or, or APP. Yeah. And I, I think, too. So what, like you said, in pediatrics, it's your child. And so it's really easy to get really hysterical really quickly. But we have to remember you. We all have to remember common. Like you said, common things are common. And and with children, you know. With an adult, you may rush out and order a CT, no problem. But like everything is so different. And children, they're not just little adults. So a CT is so much radiation for them that they don't need. And you have to think about the implications of that. And and even medications, they just they affect children so differently. So I, I just have to try to be patient. And one thing that I did recently, um, we've had a kind of unexpected medical issue with one of our kids that was even with two pediatricians in the family. And I say this all the time too. I don't know how people that have no one in their family that's medical that they can ask questions to like, God bless y'all. I mean, it's hard because we, that's all we are. My whole family, um, except for my one brother, who's the most successful of us all, but that's a different story. Um, don't go into medicine is the moral of that story. But And we still, we have like our family group text, you know, and we still can't come to a consensus on things. And so it's, it's really hard. But one thing that I did say, I think you have to really just think about the way you're wording things. Like I, we've been seeing a nurse practitioner, I obviously respect the hell out of nurse practitioners. I am one. And she hasn't, certainly hasn't been doing anything wrong, but I just thought, okay, we're two weeks into this. We've had five appointments at Vanderbilt and you know what? I'm ready to see an actual neurologist. And so I just said, um, you know, when will we have the opportunity to see an attending? Didn't say like, can you please pass us? I don't know. I just, I took a minute to really step back and say, okay, how is she going to hear this? I didn't want her to hear like, you've done a crappy job because she hadn't. But I mean, I had to do that myself. And and she may be thinking the same thing that I would have thought, you know, when I was working on an academic team, I would have been like, sure, he's going to tell you the same thing that I just said, but that's fine. And that, And that's okay. So I think just remembering how you're approaching things, the way you're, we're saying it. And, and there are times when I have had to just be myself upset and say like, my child is in pain. I just want to get her some relief, you know, and, and try to just keep that human side and not be angry. And remember that for the most part, you know, everybody went into medicine for a reason. And the reason you might've thought would have been money a long time ago, but it ain't anymore. Like we, see people just burn out all the time in medicine because you're just working your ass off. And particularly in pediatrics, pediatricians make nothing. I mean, this, the lowest paid besides family medicine is the lowest paid, um, subspecialty of medicine. And, you know, it's, it's tough. So, um, and, and they're examining people that can't tell them what's wrong. I mean, my kid can't verbalize what's wrong with her. 
So anyway, that's a, that was a really good question. Um, okay, next question from one of my favorite British people, Jane Hendry. Thank you for this question, Jane. It's delightful. I think Biden just gave you a topic. Ending of the national, emergency, national and emergency declarations for COVID. Um, Ed, as someone who ran the COVID response for the state of South Carolina, what are your thoughts on that? Um, <coughs> I have like PTSD from that, by the way. That was a horrible so, time in our lives. You probably do too, but. Well, I'm sure the people in the hospital with COVID well, had yeah. it worse. Yes, they did. But, but so, it was awful. Um, what's interesting about ending the, ending the uh, emergency declaration is, so, I mean, some parts people are like, oh, well, now insurance won't cover, you know, the tests won't be free um, and things like that. And the medication might not be free. But the truth is the government already bought a bunch of medication. The medication will probably continue to be freer or at a low rate for a long time. People just aren't getting the tests that much anymore. So I don't think that'll be a huge impact. Um, I think the biggest impact will be that, uh, I don't know if people know this, but during the, during the emergency time, you could not take a patient off of Medicaid. So what's interesting is that they estimate between eight and 12 million people should come off Medicaid as soon as the um, pandemic you know, emergency response ends, which is interesting. I mean, hopefully some people are coming off because maybe they've made better finances and no longer qualify. Um, but others, especially in states that didn't take you know, Medicaid expansion. Because of like unemployment? Like what? No, they what, couldn't why? kick people off of Medicaid during the pandemic because you couldn't take away their health benefits. It was a, just a law. Okay. Yeah. It's part of the pan, part of the pandemic response law. So, um, yeah, anyway, that goes away. And so I, we, the, the, it's the highest number of people on Medicaid ever in the United States right now. And they think that's part of the reason. So they think it'll drop by eight to 12 million. Hmm. I don't know what that means. If the number of uninsured will go way, way, way up, I imagine it would. Um, so that to me is going to be one of the most interesting things. Okay. I think it's also really helpful for people too, that have been listening to you since the beginning. So if you want to hear some interesting stuff, I came out with this podcast in March of 2020. And my first guest was supposed to be this OBGYN friend of mine. And it was literally like the week that they were shutting down the universe. And I was like, Ed, I think you should talk about this because at that point, Ed had actually been working on it for months. I mean, we took our kids out of school in February and I will never forget sending an email to the school and being like, Hey, I know this sounds real weird, but my husband's been working on this thing from China and he's like pretty worried about it. So hopefully we'll see you guys after spring break, you know, LOL. Um, but would you talk about your kind of shift in thinking and the way that you feel about it? Kind of where, where are you now? Like as a person who was so engulfed in it and saw, I mean, we used to get the death reports sent to our house every day. I mean, it was like a lot. And so you were obviously very, very consumed by that in the beginning. And then as things, you know, progressed and improved over the years, and now we're here almost three years later, gosh, I can't believe it's in three years. Anyway, I digress, but what are kind of, what are your thoughts now? That's my own question. I'm just thinking out loud. I mean, I think it's an endemic virus. that's going to continue to mutate, you know, and how do you feel about testing? I mean, I think it's fine to test. I mean, I think the testing is not what it used to be. I think if you're testing, you know, to avoid infecting a immunocompromised person or something like that, I think that makes sense. Um, you know, I don't think we need to test the way we used to, you know, just because, I mean, the virus is essentially endemic. It's everywhere. Mm -hmm. The big giant surge we were supposed to see this winter didn't happen. Mm -hmm. You know, there's new strains and I've stopped keeping up with the numbers of the strains. 
And so you know, it's going to continue to happen. I mean, I think, I mean, I don't know, hopefully, but I assume one strain will kind of went out at the end or maybe we'll just have multiples. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think people will be less and less interested in the vaccine. You know, I think yeah. it just is going to go the way of, of, of flu, I imagine. Um, um, but we'll see. I mean, what I think now is that I think a lot of the stuff that it leapfrogged a lot of scientific things, you know, really well, like the vaccine development processes and things like that. What I'm hoping comes out of it is like a universal flu vaccine or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be really cool. So next question, I'd like to hear about the state of mental health care in prisons and a little background. Why would you be able to answer that question? Um, <clears throat> so I've worked in and out of correctional institutions, I don't know, for 12, 14 years. I'm not sure. But yeah. uh, both delivering health care and then helping come up with systems to help the health care of inmates um, in South Carolina and actually the whole nation. Well, about 40 different states. So, yeah, I mean, that's just a huge issue. I, I'll say this. Like, if you're going to if you're going to say here's a macro level view if you were to take the United States and step back and be like, what used to happen to mental health people who are so severely mentally ill that they, A, committed a crime or, you know, B, were unsafe to be on their own in society or whatever. So it used to be they would go into mental health hospitals, the majority. Mm-hmm. Well, look around. There are no more mental health hospitals. Those things just aren't, there's just not many of them anymore. They still exist. But really the correction, most people would say the correctional institutions have kind of replaced those to a large degree. Were correctional institutions intended you know, to house mental health patients? No, it's not the idea behind them. And so, I mean, frankly, I think the mental health institutions are overwhelmed by, excuse me, the correctional institutions are overwhelmed by mental health uh, patients. A lot of averages say that 75% of people in the correctional institution have some mental health illness. Um, You know, that's prior to going in. Um, And so I think it's huge. I mean, suicides are high in correctional institutions because of the stress of being incarcerated and the life events around that and then compounding that with pre-existing mental health conditions makes it incredibly high. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's the state I would say is, I don't know, I don't want to use the word crisis lightly, but I mean, I think, I mean, it's pretty much in crisis, I would say. It's interesting because prisons, prisoners are the, what are the only guaranteed population in America that's population in America that's guaranteed healthcare, correct? Well, the inmates, um, have a constitutional right to, to care. Yeah, that's true. That's very interesting, but it's so frustrating. I mean, you do a lot of work with prisons and anyway, we could have a whole, maybe we'll have a prison episode one day because I find it fascinating and it's so heartbreaking. And there's so many things that you come home and just be like, I literally cannot believe this happened today. Yeah. And it's a lot of institutions, <clears throat> there's private and public institutions. I think the majority of the institutions, certainly the public institutions, you know, try hard to deliver good mental health care in, in uh, correctional settings. But imagine, I mean, it's hard. I mean, it's harder to get people to go work in correctional settings. And, um, and, you know, I mean, I think you're tasking a lot of correctional officers to, you know, observe mental health patients for you. And they're not trained yeah. in that. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's challenging. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, okay. Healthcare AI. I don't know what the question is, but I just thought you would find that interesting. I mean, healthcare. So this is like a, <laughs> a whole, like, I assume this is like coming from the chat GPT thing or whatever. But I mean, I think I've, I've tasked chat GPT to do some healthcare related things. I mean, it's pretty, it's interesting. It certainly is conversational. 
sounding, you know, the references are okay. It'll pull. So yeah, I look at chat GPT to some degree as like, you remember when you used to go to the library? Well, <laughs> some people might remember you used to go to the library. They probably don't. Yeah. You try They're to find so a book, young. but let me tell you a story. <laughs> it used to be when you went to this <laughs> building called a library that you would have to go ask a lady there called a librarian, like where to find a book. And she would send you over to a file, a tiny file cabinet full of little tiny index cards that had decimal points on them called the Dewey Decimal System. And you would have to find, you'd go to the row, the aisle, all that kind of jazz. Well, anyway, now we always look that up all online, right? And that, you know, at, when that was happening, it was like, this is going to destroy libraries and this is going to be whatever. But now it's just like commonplace, right? Same thing's happening with ChatGPT. Like this is going to destroy essay writing or this is going to, no one's going to be able to have an original thought anymore. It's all going to be AI. Um, and I think AI scrubs the internet, you know, whatever for like all this information. Um, the real risk is when AI starts scrubbing AI and starts scrubbing itself, you know, and then it becomes its own self-propagating thing. But in the interim, I think it's just going to be a tool we'll use, you know, to help us advance and to, just to get things done quicker. But medical AI I think it's pretty interesting. It's such a broad field. I mean, there's everything from, you know, helping to diagnose to like looking at radiological images and, and, and you know, trying to make uh, narrow down pathogens and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think the most interesting thing is the AI that's being used to predict um, in like in like trials and clinical trials and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think that is super, super cool and hopefully it'll really help advance science quickly. But it's such a broad topic. I mean, it's in everybody talks about it. Um, I'll just say this when people say to you, they have AI or whatever, like, just make sure it's probably not AI. It's probably something else. Who, who's saying that? What if people, everybody that? says that they're like, oh, I got this new thing. We're going to use AI here. Like we're going to use AI to whatever. It's like just what people say. And so. Is it? Yeah. It's what people say where I am. And I mean, just make sure it's not <laughs> something else. Like there's all kinds of things that are not AI that people say they are like natural language processing, machine learning, and all this kind of stuff, it's all in the same kind of category. But um, I think what we call AI is different than what a real AI person thinks of AI. Okay. Well, interesting. Um, all right. Last question, because a bunch of people asked about this one, and I'm interested to hear your answer. Okay. So Wagovi, Ozempic, the weight loss shot, Kardashian drug, whatever you want to call it. What are your thoughts on this? And yeah, what are your thoughts on it? I um, did not know the Kardashians were on it. I have no desire to know anything about those people. However, it's too late. Well, Wagovi, I assume talking about Wagovi and, you know, semaglutide and, um, <coughs> excuse me, Ozempic. Um, you know, I think I saw something interesting that I was like, well, what about? These drugs is 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 being obese now uh, really an option now these drugs exist you know, um, in other words it's it optional now, uh, I, you know the drugs are super successful. I'll say this, and then the other well, then the other debate is okay well should people who don't have diabetes get these drugs just for weight loss right like someone needs to lose fifteen pounds and they're trying to do it to be in a movie or whatever I don't know like let's let's just back up a little bit. First of all, yeah, of course, the people with, with the disease it was created for originally should have first access to the drug. No one's arguing that. There's going to be plenty of the drug out there because the drug company is going to make fortune. And it seems to really work. So I got a couple of thoughts on it. The first being like, what happens when you stop it? You know, um, 
it looks like in the data that the majority of people gained back some of the weight, but it doesn't like you gained back all of it. So that's good over whatever time period they've studied, which hasn't been a decade or anything. Um, it's been a year, I think, as long as I saw, maybe not, but, um, you know, so there's that, and is there going to be some sort of intermittent dosing afterwards? And then the second thing is, do I think people should use it for weight loss? I mean, here's what I think. I think in society, all the odds are stacked against us in, in the United States, in our current food system. So when you go to a restaurant or whatever, or go get something. Grocery store. A grocery store, get something out of a machine, whatever it is, right? I mean, the chances of there being some chemical in there that contributes to weight weight gain is pretty freaking high. Mm-hmm. Like what what is high fructose corn syrup for us? Like what is the stuff that people are adding? Like the, the additives, the preservatives. We, we don't even know what half the stuff does to us over long term, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I think the food industry is trying to put more and more sugar in things, more and more butter in things, more and more fat. Salt, flavor. Salt, just, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, go get your vegetables and make sure you fry them, you know, or make sure you dip them in this or whatever. Or, and I mean, I just think that, I think the odds are really stacked against us, you know, in, in our society, you know, and fast food's awful for you and all this kind of stuff. And so, yeah, if we have a tool that can help, you know, even the odds a little bit, like, I don't really have a problem with it. Um, you know, I, I do think the, the, also think about this. Okay. The diabetic patients, need, no one's already in that. Well, being overweight has its own set of health issues. What about the people who are overweight and because of that have hypertension and sleep, sleep apnea. apnea and yeah, exactly. And, and heart disease and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, um, joint issues from their not being able to move around, which contributes to a sedentary lifestyle, which contributes to, you know, more heart disease. So I think getting weight off is super important. I think, I think we'll probably, as more and more drugs come out, like terzepatide and a couple other ones, um, we'll start to really tackle this in a way we have not, not seen before, which is kind of exciting. That's very interesting. Well, Ed, thank you for being here and thank you for your time today. And guys, as always, if you like this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share it with your friends. And I'll see you next week.